You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. Listeners, this episode was originally released on December 5th, 2023. Unfortunately, because of a technical glitch, it was accidentally deleted on December 17th. 2023. However, as soon as this mishap was discovered, the episode was re-released the same day, December 17th. So, if you've already heard this episode, we apologize for any confusion. The actual next episode of this podcast will be released on December 21st, 2023. So with that being the case, let's just move on. You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you might want to try. There's something about me you don't know. During the day, I'm Anna Cat Walker. Wearing? Right. And at night, I am amazing woman. So you're serious. <laughs> I married amazing woman! My Amazing Woman, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Daddy-O. From Marky Witt's Audio Works comes a suspenseful tale of murder and redemption. Many years ago, I killed a man. His name was Fortunato. Based on the 1846 short story by Edgar Allan Poe, I am to take my leave for a previous engagement. I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and, well, I have my doubts. Let us go. Whither? Why to your faults? (laughs) How long have you had that cough? Oh, it is nothing. Proceed. Herein is the Amontillado. Come now. Release me from these chains and... Stop that infernal racket! You have no idea the pain you have caused me. In pace requiescat. The Cask of Amontillado. Available now. Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, 
We shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you, as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your hosts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 70 of the Forgotten News Podcast. This is Jim. This is Kit. This is Jessica. Listeners, this episode was originally scheduled for early November, but instead it is being released now in early December. We are not going to discuss the reasons, especially because some of you, or maybe even most of you, already know. So instead, we are going to jump into our story. But first, as usual, we are going to give a short warning for anyone who might be emotionally triggered by the subject matter. Our featured story takes place about 75 years ago. It revolves around the mysterious death of a middle-aged couple from a sudden explosion on a yacht. The mystery is whether these two deaths were planned and carried out by the couple's teenage daughter. So listeners, with that having been said, if you are of a nervous or sensitive disposition or get frightened easily, we advise you calmly but sincerely to simply turn off this episode now. In addition, we do not recommend this story for children under the age of 14, since it could easily be much too scary for young ears. Parental discretion is strongly advised. The story will be narrated by our lovely, smart, and talented Miss Kit Karen. Whoop, 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 whoop. And with all of that having been said, on with the show. Our story begins in the springtime of 1947 in the beautiful city of Newport Harbor, California. Now, before we get into the details, we are first going to set the stage with the following news report that was published and distributed by United Press International to newspapers and radio stations. Santa Ana, California, April 30th, 1947. Beulah Louise Overell today celebrated her 18th birthday. That was to have been her wedding day, alone and forlorn in her jail cell, hoping that someone had sent her a present. The young heiress and her fiancé, George Bud Gollum, 21, who had planned to be married today, were instead awaiting trial on charges of murdering her parents on the family yacht 
So now that you know that, we're going to tell you the story behind the story of the terrible tragedy. On the evening of Saturday, March 15, 1947, Walter Overell, age 62, and his wife, Beulah, age 57, were enjoying a relaxing evening on their yacht, together with their daughter and her sweetheart, George Gollum. George was also known by his nickname, Bud. But in our story, we will call him George. He was 21 years old at this time. The daughter's name was Beulah, the same name as her mother. But she generally went by her middle name, Louise. And in our story, Louise is what we will call her, to prevent any unnecessary confusion. She was 17 years old at this time. Now, on this particular evening, the yacht was simply anchored in the harbor. But suddenly, at about 11 p.m., George and Louise announced that they were hungry and that they decided to get some hamburgers. Then, a few minutes later, they left in a rowboat and went to a late-night burger joint. However, when the young couple returned to the pier to go back to the yacht, they saw an unbelievable sight. The yacht was engulfed in flames and sinking. It had been destroyed by an explosion. In fact, according to a description by a man whose boat was anchored about 75 feet away, the blast was so powerful that, quote, it just about blew me out of my bunk, unquote. The man was the first person to reach the wreck and to try to find any survivors. He was soon joined by other searchers, including Louise and her boyfriend, frantically calling out for her parents as the ship filled with water. The bodies would not be found until much later, when the Coast Guard towed the yacht to shallow water. The first news articles called it a freak accident, possibly caused by a faulty gas line. This was an outcome that was not uncommon back then, in boats with gas motors. But only a day later, Luis and George were arrested by the police and charged with the murder of Luis's parents after an examination of the yacht revealed that the cause of the explosion had not been gasoline. It was dynamite that had been rigged with an alarm clock detonator to set off an explosion in two different areas of the yacht. And if this dynamite scheme had actually worked as planned, there would be no evidence to create suspicion of murder, because there would have been almost nothing left of the yacht. But instead, only 
one of the two intended explosions occurred. It was still enough to kill both of the victims. Walter Overell was impaled by a plank that had come loose. His wife died of multiple skull fractures. The county coroner quickly began an investigation, and when he looked closely, he determined that it was possible that the couple had died up to an hour earlier from repeated blows to the head with a hammer. But either way, it was clearly murder. Louise and George quickly became the top suspects because no one else had been on the yacht during the time that the bomb would have been put together. On top of that, Louise and George had a motive. Specifically, her family fortune, estimated at around $600,000. This was not only a very respectable amount of money in the late 1940s, it would equal over $8 million in the present day. Walter Overell had gained this wealth through a lifetime of hard work. First, through a family furniture business, and later as a real estate developer and financial investor. Louise, a college student, was the sole heir to her parents' wealth. However, based on newspaper stories from the time period, there was nothing particularly striking about Louise. She was definitely a plain Jane. One article went so far as to call her decidedly unattractive. These facts caused some reporters to wonder if George actually might have been attracted to Louise's family wealth rather than Louise herself. But on the other hand, Louise was madly in love with George. In contrast, her parents did not have any fond feelings towards him. Nevertheless, a wedding was planned for April 30th of that year, despite clear statements from Louise's parents that she would be disowned if she went through with it. Now, jumping ahead to the days immediately after the explosion, the police investigators found more bits of evidence that pointed to the couple. For example, an examination of George's car found pieces of wire and pink adhesive tape. Similar wire and tape had been found on one of the unexploded sticks of dynamite from the yacht. They also discovered bloody clothes in his car. But this was the tip of the iceberg as far as circumstantial evidence. The investigation found records of a purchase of 50 sticks of dynamite from the Trojan Powder Company. The purchase had been made by a young couple on the day before the yacht explosion. The investigators had been led to the office 
by a receipt for the dynamite, which had been found inside George's camera case. It was unmistakably written in his handwriting, although signed with a different name. In addition, the police clearly observed a noticeable lack of emotion by Louise during questioning. The charges and accusations soon attracted nationwide attention and became front-page news in every major newspaper in 1947. Numerous reporters wrote articles which mentioned the fact that Louise had bushy eyebrows and a strange taste in clothes, including the fact that she wore a mink coat when she went to jail. In addition, she was often described as plump or chubby. However, based on photographs from the time period, this particular description seems to be untrue. The couple sent spicy love letters to each other while they were in jail, awaiting trial. However, these letters made them both seem as if they were crazed by lust and became part of the evidence against them. For example, here's a quote from a letter written by Louise to George. I hope you will always love me. Oh, my darling. Oh, my pops. Popsy darling. My beautiful, handsome, intelligent pops. I adore you, always and eternally. I never want anything else but just to be alone with you. Working for you. Your slave. Louise. Then, in response, George wrote to Louise. You said that if I was ever unfaithful to you, that you would take an overdose of sleeping pills. You need never worry about having to do that. I will never be unfaithful to you. But you, you step out of line once, and you will be beaten, and you will be bruised, and perhaps worse. And then I'll lock you up in the house, and you will never go anywhere or see anyone unless you're attached to me. So be careful. <laughs> be very, very careful. Now, the newspapers decided that this was an impassioned love letter, even though it definitely sounds more like a threat of violence for Louise to keep her mouth shut. However, all of this jailhouse correspondence, as well as a diary of sexual longing that Louise had written during the months prior to the death of her parents, became part of the evidence against her when the couple went on trial on May 26, 1947. The prosecution felt certain that they would build a strong argument that Louise had become so enraged by her parents' opposition to her intended marriage that she formulated a plan with George to murder her parents. 
Prosecutor Eugene Williams told the jury, The defendants enjoyed an illicit, perverted, sadistic sexual passion amounting almost to frenzy. Lust, greed, frustration. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the raw materials of which murders are made. The lawyers for Louise and George emphasized the fact that there was no direct proof. They admitted that they had the dynamite that had been found in George's possession, but claimed that he had bought it at the request of Walter Overell, but he had not been told what it was for. They went on to put forward the argument that Walter was emotionally depressed over financial worries and had committed a murder-suicide. The trial took 133 days, along with another two days of jury deliberations, as well as a series of heated arguments between the prosecution and the defense. It had become the longest criminal trial in the history of California up to that time. Nevertheless, the courtroom was packed with spectators and reporters every day that it was in session. And in the end, the jury was sure of only one thing. Louise and George were just a couple of confused love-struck kids. The jury found them not guilty. This verdict reflected public opinion at the time. Hence, wild cheers immediately broke out from the spectators. The outcome of the trial prompted Orange County to form its own crime lab in 1948 so that analysis of important evidence could be examined quickly and correctly. In addition, the case also resulted in the state passing laws that heavily restricted the sale and purchase of dynamite. However, the acquittal was not the beginning of the love story that many people had expected or hoped for. Instead, as Louise left the courthouse, a reporter asked her if she still planned to marry George. Her answer was a loud and sharp no. As for George, his response to the same question was, we'll see. And that was the end of that. Louise did not immediately inherit her parents' estate. It became tangled in the court system, and it would be several years before she received any money. She eventually discovered that the family fortune was much smaller than had been originally reported. Nevertheless, Louise got some money from the estate but not much. In 1948, she pled guilty to a hit-and-run automobile accident. A year later, she married a 28-year-old 
Los Angeles police officer Robert Cannon. But a year later, the marriage is starting to look shaky. In October 1950, she finally received all of the remaining money from her parents' estate. The sum was $70,000. However, this inheritance was not chicken feed back then or today when it would be the equivalent of about $900,000. In 1952, she divorced her husband, then married for a second time. She then moved to Las Vegas and quickly drifted into a drinking problem, which led to her being charged with drunk driving in 1955. Then, at this point, she entirely disappeared from all news reports until 1965, when this once-famous heiress was found dead in her bed with two empty quart bottles of vodka near her head, along with a loaded, unfired rifle at her feet. Acute alcoholism was ruled the cause of death. She was just 36 years old. But as for George, he gave up his plans for medical school and instead joined a traveling circus. He married a motorcycle showgirl at the age of 23. However, in December of 1949, he was arrested by the FBI and is accused of stealing a car from a dealership in Georgia. He pled guilty and was sentenced to one year in federal prison. In February of 1950, his wife files for divorce and obtains an annulment, stating that she was reluctant to marry him in the first place and that the marriage was never consummated. After getting out of prison, George returned to college and eventually received a Ph.D. in biophysics and found a job with a defense contractor, where he was employed until the 1970s. After this, he moved to Lake Tahoe, where he sells real estate in the 1980s. He was again married and divorced and had a daughter and a son. Then, at some point, he moved to Alaska, where he died in the year 2009, at the age of 83. And that is the end of our story. Well, listeners... There is one more thing that we should mention. Specifically, the fact that even though Louise and George broke up, they both always claimed to be completely 100% innocent of the murder charge, and that neither of them had been involved with causing the explosion. 
they stuck to the story that Louise's dad asked them to buy the dynamite, but that he didn't tell them why. And because of the fact that he didn't like George, they didn't want to make a bad situation worse by asking him any questions. Mm. Honestly, that seems like a bunch of bull to me. And I don't buy their story at all. But it was a long time ago. What you gonna do? Listen, the whole thing is such a crazy story. No matter whether George and Louise were innocent or guilty. It's all very interesting to me. But who else would have motive to kill these people? Aside from the daughter. Crimes in the 40s. I don't know. Now, if it was actually a murder conspiracy, it's very interesting to wonder about whose idea it was. Louise or George. It's easy to think it was George, based on his nasty, threatening letters from when he was in jail. However, just maybe, Louise simply wanted to get her hands on the family fortune and was just using George as a dumb, convenient tool. It makes sense when you consider the fact that she dropped him like a hot potato as soon as the trial was over. By the way, did you happen to catch Louise's pet name for George? She called him Pop or Popsy. So, based on that, she might have been a girl with daddy issues. And if that's actually true, it probably explains a lot. Points are being made. (laughs) But on that note, it's time to move on. But first, we want to give an enormous thanks to our wonderful guest voices on the featured story. So please come up to the microphone, take a bow, and tell our listeners anything that you want them to know about you. Hi, this is Logan Smith, and I'm a freaking collaborator in voice projects, most notably as the announcer for Hot Copy Radio Theater. If anybody would like to get in touch with me for voiceover work or an audition, I'd love to work with you. The best way to get in touch is by my email, which is lbsmith1124 at gmail.com. That's lbsmith1124 at gmail.com. And thanks to everybody for listening. Hi, my name is Elisa Petrie, and I'm a voice actor. Whether you're on the lookout for someone to voice a character for your podcast or provide voiceover for your commercial or YouTube video, please contact me on Twitter at PetrieVO or email me at Petrie.VO at gmail.com, and let's make some magic happen. Again, that's PetrieVO on Twitter, P-E-T-R-E-Y-V-O, or Petrie.VO at gmail.com. P-E-T-R-E-Y dot V-O at gmail.com. Hi, this is Scott. I've been a featured voice here for some time, uh, as well as Madison on the air. Always willing to help out. 
any other podcasts. Got a few voices up my sleeve, a few tricks up my sleeve, and we can make some real magic together. Find me on Twitter, at ThatGeekBerry, and let's talk. Hi, this is Jerry Kokich. I'm a voice actor, and I'm always working on my craft. You can contact me at 310-403-4463 or my email at j-e-r-r-y-k-o-k-i-c-h at yahoo.com. Thank you so much. Excellent job. Thank you, everyone. You did a great job. Many thanks. Yes, thank you. All of you were terrific. We will now move on to our regular segment, Police Blotter and Court News. Oopsie! No, actually, we aren't doing that. Instead, we are going to tell you a second true crime story. Well, hold on. It's not exactly a true crime story, although police officers are involved. Hmm. Maybe it's a story that should have been on our Halloween episode because it's kind of scary. Well, we'll just let you decide what it is and what to make of it. And on that note, Here it is. This is a story from South Carolina, which is where I happen to live. Down under the busy streets of Columbia, South Carolina, there are tunnels. Actually, miles of tunnels. And over the years, these tunnels have been nicknamed the catacombs. There are entrances to them all over the city. Some of them date back to the 1860s, and some even prior to that. However, in the present day, they are used as utility tunnels. But for students at the University of South Carolina... The tunnels are sealed off. In fact, students are strictly forbidden from entering. You can actually be expelled if you are discovered to have gone down into them. So beware. These tunnels are deemed to be dangerous for various reasons, such as black mold or similar yucky stuff. And also because you could hurt yourself or get lost or trapped down there. Or you might get injured and not be able to get cell phone service. But any of that might be the least of your worries. There is a thing which lurks in these catacombs which should frighten you the most. And that thing is... The Three-Eyed Man. 
There are eyewitness stories in regard to this three-eyed man, and honestly, they are terrifying. The first reported encounter was on November 12, 1949, at 10.43 p.m. Two students watched in absolute bewilderment as a man-like creature pulled up a heavy manhole cover at the corner of Sumter and Green Street near the Long Street Theater, and then entered down into the tunnels. He was described as wearing bright silver clothing. This man or creature was sighted again six months later on April 7, 1950. A university police officer was patrolling the campus one night and suddenly noticed two mutilated chickens in the alley behind the Longstreet Theater. Feathers and chicken parts were scattered everywhere. The officer was extremely confused by this sight. He wondered if it was a prank by either the actors at the theater or the members of a university fraternity. The officer went to his vehicle and reported what he had seen. But a moment later, he suddenly saw something. So, he got out of his vehicle and went back to the alley. And lo and behold, he sees a man dressed in bright silver clothing huddled over some of the bloody chicken pieces. The officer then shined his flashlight at the man, who then looked back at him with a grotesque, shiny face, and in the middle of his forehead was a third eye. It wasn't a very large eye, but it was unquestionably a third eye. The officer slowly backed up towards his vehicle to call for backup. But when the other police arrived at the scene and they walked over to the alley, the only thing that they see anywhere are just a few bones and feathers. Now, getting back to the catacombs. Over the years, these tunnels became a place for students to hang out hold secret parties, romantic rendezvous, and other similar activities, far away from the prying eyes of university authorities. This is obviously one of the main reasons they are now closed. Somebody always finds a way to ruin it for everyone else. (laughs) But in the 1960s, the tunnels were still open. And in October of 1968, a group of fraternity brothers decided to take a group of pledges down the catacombs for a challenge of some kind. They were walking along when they suddenly saw a man hunched over and dressed in silver. However, the story does not end there. This man came charging at the students. The pledges first thought that this was part of the challenge, 
until they saw the man pick up a lead pipe and the fraternity leaders began running away as the man chased towards all of them. He managed to violently knock one of the students down with the pipe, according to a police report. He received cuts and bruises in this attack. The other students made it out unharmed, but went straight to the police. So the officer searched the tunnel, but found nothing. Over the years, especially in the 80s and 90s, there have been other reports of a three-eyed man wearing silver having been seen in the tunnels. And according to a representative of the maintenance department at the university, quote, we don't use the tunnels unless it's absolutely necessary, unquote. So beware. Otherwise, you might get hit with a lead pipe by a silver three-eyed man. By the way, I mentioned earlier that I live in South Carolina. However, in all of the years that I've lived here, I've never been to Columbia, where this story took place. And now that I know this weird story, I doubt I'm ever going there. (laughs) Listeners, we hope you don't mind that on this episode, we replaced the police blotter with this strange little story. But after all, if you really think about it, This story was almost like an expanded version of a crazy police blotter story. Now, speaking of the police blotter, we need to give you a heads up. The police blotter segment will not be on our next episode because that is our annual Christmas special. Our next regular episode will be in January, and that will be when we will have our next police blotter segment. So unfortunately... You'll just need to wait till then. Sorry about that. But nevertheless, we need to move forward with this episode, the one that you are listening to right now. And on that note, we will now move on to our recommendations and advice segment. But this time, we only have one recommendation, and it is from all three of us. Specifically, that you should listen to our Christmas special, which will be released on December 21st. It might be a little different this year. We'll see. And listeners, on December 21st, you'll see, too. Jim, this is a podcast. Our listeners won't be seeing anything. Yes, a podcast is not visual. But I think our listeners know what I mean. Honestly, everyone, the only thing that matters is please listen to our Christmas special. (laughs) It will be released on December 21st and be sure to tune in. And that is the end of the recommendations and advice segment for this episode. We will now move on to the next part of this episode. 
specifically the part where we ask you to contact us at ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. We absolutely want to hear from you. We like hearing from you. Seriously, we really do. And here's another thing that we'd genuinely appreciate. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts, as well as anywhere else that lets you post a review. Reviews help other listeners to find the show and to hear the stories that we share with you. But only five-star ratings or reviews. Honestly, listeners, please, nothing less than five stars. And I know that sometimes we sound like we are just goofing around when we ask you to give us nothing less than a five-star rating or review. But in reality, the truth is, we are actually very serious Because every five-star review helps to bring new listeners for the Forgotten News podcast and gives us a boost in the rankings. So, basically, it's important. Very important. So, help us. Please, just take a minute of your time. Go to Apple and write a five-star review for the Forgotten News podcast. Or, if you don't have the time to write a review, we understand. But go to Apple anyway and click the five-star button. Plus, there are some streaming services like Spotify, for example, that also let you click and give a five-star rating. So, be sure to hit that button. It would be so sweet of you, and thank you in advance for doing that. But regardless of whether you want to post a rating or review, you should always feel free to talk to us. We want to know what you think. Don't force us to just wander. So you can either send us an email at ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter, now known as X. Because that's a new name, right? (laughs) And in addition to all of that, if you'd like to interact with me, Kit Karen, one-on-one, just follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Tell me how I'm doing or what you thought about the episode or anything else. I am always completely open and willing to hear from any of our listeners regardless of whether it's about me or about this podcast. There's only one rule. Don't be salty or mean. But if you are a listener to this show, then I already know. You were raised better than that. So, my handle on Twitter is at KitKaren. I'll spell that for you. At K-I-T-C-A-R-E-N. On Facebook, you should be able to find me if you type Kit Karen, but with a hyphen in between. In other words, type K-I-T 
hyphen C-A-R-E-N in the search bar. But just to be safe, there is a link to my Facebook page included on the show notes for this episode. And if you send me a DM and you follow my one simple rule, I promise that you will hear back from me. Just be good and I'll be good to you. So, do we have a deal? (laughs) Hey everybody, this is Jessica. You can always reach me at xoxojessicaxoxo on all social media platforms and at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Now, listeners, in case you haven't already figured it out, we are giving you all of these different ways of contacting us because we truly like hearing from you. And I absolutely mean that. Now, on that note, if you've made it this far, hello there, and welcome to the end of the episode. (laughs) We hope that you enjoyed spending this time with us. And I think that's everything that we have on our agenda for this episode. Nope. There's one more thing. Remember, history is no mystery. This episode was recorded before a live audience of us. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. Goodbye, listeners, and be sure to listen to our Christmas special. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. Evil always takes advantage of ambiguity. Have you ever told a friend? Oh, I'm fine. When you really felt... Just so overwhelmed. Or sent a text. Can't sleep. Are you awake? When you couldn't find the words to say... I'm scared to be alone with my thoughts right now. Then this is your sign to reach out to the 988 Lifeline for 24-7 free confidential support. You don't have to hide how you feel. Text, call, or chat anytime. 